Slate's Serial Spoiler Special is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Right now, get a free audiobook of your choice when you visit Audible.com slash spoiler. The following podcast contains explicit language. Previously on the Serial Spoiler Special. This, for me, was the most intense listening experience of the show so far. Really? I mean, I actually felt like this episode was one of the first where I was really aware of the show presenting a red herring. And our guest this week is Wesley Morris. Good to have you, Wesley. Hi, y'all. What's going on? A lot, actually. That's, <laughs> that's how I would put it. Yeah, I'm one of the few people who gets to listen to the show with, with no music. The letter, yeah. but then the phone call. You're my executioner, you're my savior, right. I don't know which. Altered voices. And it just sort of brought home how powerful she is. How much ownership people are going to have with serial. These guys are so fucking wily. Hi, I'm David Hagland, a senior editor at Slate. And this is the last spoiler special for season one of Serial the multi-part investigative series from This American Life. For the past couple of months, we've been recording this podcast every Thursday, right after the new episode of Serial comes out. And today we're talking about the final episode of the first season, an episode called What We Know. As usual, I'm joined by Slate staff writer Katie Waldman, who's in our D.C. studio. Hey, Katie. Hey. And making his triumphant return to the Serial spoiler specialist Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hey, Mike. I feel triumphant. It is a triumph. They're hanging my jersey in the rafters. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> well, I'm very excited to have you back here, partly because, as listeners to this podcast know, uh, you said several weeks ago when talking to Sarah Koenig, please don't let this be a meditation on the nature of truth. Now, whether it was or not is something I think we can actually discuss, maybe even argue about. But I want to start today's episode by talking about the very end. You know, Sarah started off by <laughs> talking to Adnan on what I thought was quite possibly the funniest moment on a podcast that has had bits of humor here and there. Sure. But when she was talking to Adnan on the phone and he said, wait, if you don't mind my asking, <laughs> do you not have an ending? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you guys watched the Funny or Die parody of the final episode. With which Michaela we, Watkins. Yeah, with Michaela Watkins, perfectly cast, I thought, as Sarah Koenig. We put it up on Slate. This opened kind of like that parody. <laughs> but, but what did you guys think of the ending? What was... The ending, because she told him, eh, I'm not sure. And then she told us, of course I have an ending. So isn't that exactly like the Yellow King yelling at the true detectives, that's it? <laughs> <laughs> Meta. What did you think, Mike, what did you think was the ending? Well, I think the ending, unlike uh, every piece, I, I don't want to say something obvious, which is that this isn't uh, fiction, but you really, really think about the ways this can't be fiction. And for her to have done the thing that's almost necessary in fiction, if you chart out fiction, there has to be, if not a twist ending, a change in tone between the last act and the climax. But in real life, it isn't. And you could do things to make it seem climactic. But for her to have given us something that's satisfied on the level of real fiction is almost impossible journalistically, I think. She'd have had to withhold something. She, she would have had to have such a lucky break in the exact last week. It was so impossible. I give this episode, the entire show, an A+. And I understand if people are unsatisfied with the ending, but think about your expectations. Somehow, I think that in an internet culture where we you know, rain down insults on shows that muff the ending like Lost and shows that nail the ending like... Uh, like um, 
Not Goodfellas. What's I the, think you're going to say Breaking Bad. Sopranos. Yeah. Sopranos. Okay. Yeah. And 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 which we loathe really great endings like Sopranos. Of course, this ending is going to break the internet, but it was sound. I thought. What about you, Katie? Yeah, I guess uh, what was satisfying about it is we learned what Sarah thinks. And, you know, she's been waffling and she's very open about that. She says, oh, I've, I've moved a lot in my thinking. Um, but she comes to a resolution. She comes to a stopping place and she says, hey, I acquit Adnan Syed as a juror. And then there's sort of that other sort of um, walking it back human moment where she says, yeah, but, you know, as someone walking down the street, um, what do I think? Um, and at first she said something like, um, even if I believe in my heart of hearts that he did it, I have to acquit. And I was thinking, but there's no way you think that, right? <laughs> and then and then she goes back and says, most of the time, I don't think he did it, but I can't be sure. Um, and I thought that was another really satisfying way to frame this because the one conclusion I think that this podcast can come to without sort of trespassing on, you know, what the truth of the matter is and turning a nonfiction story into fiction is like we can actually say, I think that there's not enough evidence to have this guy in jail. And so she says this not surprising, but still really important uh, conclusion, which is like, they should not have put him in jail. And then, you know, we're left to sort of pick over the bones of whether we privately think that he did the crime. Right. And we we haven't, uh, I haven't really pushed you guys yet on whether you think then that makes this a meditation on the nature of truth. I do want to get to that. But there was also a lot of stuff in this episode. There was a lot of, uh, there was some new information. There was revisiting old information. And I'm curious whether any of that jumped out at you was there anything that, that changed your mind that affected what you were thinking about the case? Well, first of all, I don't I never thought that Sarah changed her mind. I thought that in the process she was being a good journalist and open to ambiguity, but at a point uh, where it's like, okay, now you got to say, but guess what? If we had woken her up from a dead sleep for the last two months, hey, do you think he did it? She'd have said the same thing. And that's not bad, but that, and that, and she was letting us in on that. That's that not implies surprising. that she was sleeping, though. Which yeah, I'm yeah, not so that's sure. right. The production <laughs> schedule would uh, contradict that. I, I, my take on so much of this stuff with trying to follow the fine points of what pinged where, and, and then when they get into street names, and if you don't live in Baltimore and know the difference between Baltimore City and Ellicott City, just like, I understand you're putting it out there to be thorough and, uh, you know, it's almost like a data dump, but I didn't become engaged in that. I'm waiting for the sentence at the end where she says, this is really bad or this is really good or we can explain this. I thought, I think as Katie thought the whole, Katie, you've said that you're so unimpressed with the Nisha call. Yes, I was very vindicated by this. Yeah. And the other big thing that was the revelation, non-revelation, I think actually this gets at something fundamental, was the discovery that there could have been a phone booth in the vestibule of the Best Buy. Now, why this is important for the case is obvious, but why this is important for the narrative storytelling. So much of maybe why we're saying there's doubt and there's question marks is because it happened so long ago and because people's memories are fungible. And so much of the whipsawing that I think was satisfying to us wasn't based on the nature of ambiguity. It was based on things that we were told that maybe we shouldn't have been told. Now, I'm going to play for you. Do you remember in episode nine, she brought on a woman, a friend, who had information about the Best Buy. Let's remind you of this. We did a lot of research on this, where it was, whether it was, and we could not account for this phone booth. Laura said that's because it never was. She said the only conceivable place for a phone at the Best Buy would have been inside in the foyer part of the store, 
but there was no phone there either. Laura says she knows this because she used to go to that Best Buy a lot. And then she talks about how she used to actually shoplift in the Best Buy. She knew there wasn't a phone. Well, the information in this episode is like, oh, there's good evidence that there was a phone. So what does that do to episode nine? It makes it seem like, well, maybe it wasted her time or maybe it gives us that whipsaw effect. Maybe it gives us, oh, it's so confusing. The same thing happened within an episode with uh, Mr. S where there were all these questions. Why is he going so deep in the woods? Why is he going so deep in the woods? And it's like, oh, because otherwise people on the road would have seen his penis. Anyway. <laughs> anyway <laughs> Which he liked to show people, by yes. the way. Yes. Right. But anyway, the whole point of... of that spiel is to point out that a lot of maybe what we in 2014 are calling ambiguity is going down the wrong road reporting wise or not remember or honest misrememberings or things that aren't like see how hazy the case was it's just see how hard it is to put together the truth all these years after. Yeah, although on the other hand, this whole uh, digression about the phone booth seems kind of beside the point because we had so much other evidence saying that Best Buy didn't factor in at all. So it's it's sort of, a, it sounded like they were doing due reporting diligence, like, oh, let's like wrap up our phone booth subplot with this shiny bow. We have this new information, whatever. And I was like, but we're, we're not talking about Best Buy anymore. Now we're talking about a, a pool hall or something. Yeah, there's also this issue of... You know, I've, I heard the podcast described recently as, as show your work journalism, and that's basically <laughs> what this is. And especially the uh, the whole thing about whether the Nisha call could have been a butt dial was a long way round to, to that conclusion. And in fact, there, it even included a joke. I don't think it was Dane. I think it was the other producer. Julie Snyder. Julie Snyder yeah. saying, yeah, it was a lot of work to get this. Yeah. yeah. And they sort of laugh mordantly. Um, to me, I, I was left thinking about uh, some things they couldn't investigate that way. Or, or, you know, couldn't find a way into. So what jumped out most was when uh, she was talking to Don and and we got the, you know, her report of what he said, not in his voice, but he was willing to share his words. And he said that Yurik, the prosecutor, yelled at him uh, on multiple occasions after the during the first trial and the second trial to make Adnan seem more creepy. And, you know, that doesn't prove anything, but it does show the way that this case was tried. There was an interesting piece this week. I believe it was in The Guardian. It was all about the role of a of a prosecutor, a state, you know, a state attorney, state prosecutor in a case that that prosecutor has an odd role to play because he's supposed to you know, make the case for the prosecution, but he's also supposed to serve the interests of justice. This is what the point of the piece was. I'm not an expert in this stuff, but it made sense. But it also creates this very difficult situation. And sometimes prosecutors just seem to ignore that second responsibility. They they want to get the conviction. And and, and Europe came across that way in in this episode. And then Sarah said, you know, I contacted him to ask if he would respond to this. And he said, I'm not authorized to speak about it. You know, so so end of story in a way. Alas, poor Yurik. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that that was what jumped out to me in terms of just the, sort of the new stuff. Uh, you know, other things. You know, the fact that you know Jay's old coworker from the porn store. You know, he had interesting things to say, but it's... oh, he was so oh, I had such a bad <laughs> reaction to him, especially with the oh, of course, no, no Jay did not tell me um, Adnan's name, but I'm sure it was Adnan. He was some Muslim or like Middle Eastern guy. It was just oh. I had a, I had a imagine, imagine if they had, I would like a two supercuts of the entire series done. One is eliminating everything that gets disproved in a later episode just to save our time. It would be a much shorter show. And it's not bad journal. 
realistically, when you're reporting in real time, this happens. And the other one is to eliminate everything that a court would call hearsay. A mm. lot would be eliminated. In fact, if you did those two things, it'd be about a six-episode show and might be really tight. <laughs> well, so then let me, let me raise this question again. Do you guys think that it was a meditation on the nature of truth? Well, okay. I just want to bring up one thing that Sarah said, I think in conversation with Dana, um, that was like the most insightful uh, comment I had I've even read in commentary about serial versus serial itself. And she basically said, I don't understand what the utility of all um, these lies are, because I think the show has done a really, really good job highlighting discrepancies and 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 proving that, you know, Adnan may be sketchy, may be lying about something. Jay is almost certainly lying about things. Um, there's just there's a ton of ways that the various narratives don't um, line up with each other. And I think like the really tricky part of the show has been making that mean something like, OK, maybe there's a pool hall and not Best Buy. Maybe there was a phone booth. Maybe there wasn't. Maybe Jen and Jay dropped off uh, Jay's clothes in the morning versus at night. And it's just what do all of these lies and evasions and cover-ups mean? Like, what do they add up to? And I think that was sort of the most elusive part of all of this for me. Do you know what that makes me think of and what you're saying makes me think of, Katie, is even though there are a lot of parts of this show that tend to indict the criminal justice system, like the bit with York, doesn't that show that the standard of guilty beyond a reasonable doubt is really excellent and useful because we don't have to prove alternative timelines. We don't have to point a finger at someone else. We just have to say, you know, there's so much doubt here we can't acquit. And so by that standard, and this is where 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 Sarah ends the show, but it's a good and useful standard because mm. it's really hard to figure out, you know, what the other story is and why they would be both lying and yeah, right. I finally watched the the staircase yeah. uh, not long ago. This documentary that has come up a few times, and at one point the defense attorney says, and I, I still haven't googled this. I should, but he says that in Scotland, the the terms they use in uh, trials are guilty and not proven. Yeah, hmm. and I've been thinking about that a lot because that's in theory what we use as well, but that's not what we say. We say guilty or not guilty, and not guilty sounds like innocent and. You know, I think that's confusing in a way. If you think that he probably did it, then it's hard to say not guilty, but that's what you have right. to say if you have reasonable doubt. Do you think uh, not guilty project would be well-funded? Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, and actually that's a real, I mean, that I, I know a little bit about that world, and that's a real issue that, that you know, there's uh, times when you are you can't prove that someone's innocent and yeah. but that's not the standard, and it's not, it, it's not supposed to be. I, I will just say quickly that my own thought on this that I didn't think that, it was a meditation on the nature of truth exactly i she ended by saying i don't think that he should have been found guilty it was it, you know it wasn't i don't know if we can really know anything and you know she didn't end on a on on a note of the way memory shifts and changes and all of that she ended yes. on a pretty decisive right. yeah. she didn't revel in it in a way that yeah. can be done in a way that sometimes is a cop out and it was no we'll never know i guess life works mysteriously like right. that and there was someone's hands on that poor girl's throat you know someone killed her and right. so all, and she came out with the best most forceful thing that the journalism warranted. And that's what I wanted. That's, yeah. I would love the journalism to have come out with innocent, guilty, or, but it came, she came out with the most forceful statement that the journalism warranted, and I think that that was the correct conclusion to come to. Well, there are some more things we need to get to. We haven't talked about the Innocence Project yet, and we haven't talked about Ronald Lee Moore, who came up in that section of the show. But first, I need to tell everyone about our sponsor. 
This week, the Serial Spoiler Special is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the Internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment, information, and educational programming. Content from Audible is downloaded and played back on your smartphone, your portable device, your PC. Basically, if you can listen to me right now, if you can listen to Serial, then you can listen to the many, many things available on Audible. And Audible is offering listeners of the Spoiler Special a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com spoiler, download a free title, and start listening. It's that easy. What kind of thing can you find on Audible? Well, for instance, a listener named Wendy suggests that people check out A Wilderness of Error by Errol Morris. You may know his work. He directed The Thin Blue Line, which has also come up a lot in discussions of Serial. A Wilderness of Error is about the Jeffrey McDonald case, which I mentioned last week in connection with Janet Malcolm's book, The Journalist and the Murderer. Wendy says, it's an absorbing read and also a thorough and very compelling analysis of the evidence and the whole process by which McDonald was convicted. Very relevant to anyone interested in Serial. It's available on Audible, A Wilderness of Error by Errol Morris. You can pick that or you can pick any number of other things. There are 150,000 titles, even more than that. Go to audible.com spoiler. That's audible.com spoiler and get started today. As I said a second ago, Deirdre Enright and the Innocence Project returned in this episode, and I think that's an important part of it that we should discuss. But it also reminded me of of, uh, an email we got a while ago from a guy named Scott Lewis. He's the CEO and editor-in-chief of the nonprofit news site Voice of San Diego. He's also a fan of the Serial Spoiler Special, and he joins us now. Hey, Scott. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. So let me read, read this email quickly. You said you guys are missing how important Episode 7 was for setting up some kind of closure for Serial. Now, people will remember that Episode 7 was the one about the Innocence Project. And you added, the involvement of the Innocence team will likely drive us towards something more concrete. Their conclusion about his innocence or their theory on the murder will be the climax and ending of the season. I guarantee it. Uh, we we teased you a little bit on a subsequent episode about your guarantee, and you followed up, and you said, thanks for the gentle mocking of my guarantee, that the Innocence Project conclusion would be the climax and conclusion of Serial. I still guarantee it. You should have me on if it works out that way. So here you are, and I actually am not sure what you will think. Do, do you think that your guarantee came true? Yeah, yes and no. I think, um, I think Deirdre Enright provided an escape hatch, and I think that they were prepared to pull it, and I think they pulled it. And it was disappointing. I think that they, I think that uh, Deirdre's uh, certainty is kind of off-putting, and it's and it's weird. You know, her question, "Who's more likely to do this? This random serial killer that we found, or this 17-year-old kid?" They make that sound like that's a really conclusive point. To me, it's it's not conclusive at all. I I, I thought it was it was pretty weak, and I found her her off-putting and unhelpful, really. Well, Scott, I strongly agree with one thing you said, and that's when David asked you, do you think your guarantee came true? And you said yes and no. I, I agree with the no. It did not come true. The Innocence <laughs> Project did, was not a slam dunk. And that's fine. They're doing what they're doing. But it shows the difference to me. It shows the difference between the legalities and narrative. Narrative-wise, not a slam dunk, and that's satisfying at all. Well, my point was that they were going to use what they decided and what they would go to, to do next as a way to say, okay, that's where we're going to wrap things up. And I think that they were disappointed. I think that Enright let her down. Well, she couldn't. I mean, if there was nothing to find, there was nothing to find. It's not her fault. 
or if what there was to find was a serial killer that Reddit told me about weeks ago. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and, no, exactly. And which we told you about, Scott. I don't know if you listened to our extra spoily episode, but we brought up Ronald Lee Moore. Yeah, um, I did. Yeah, well, either way, I appreciate your candor, Scott, yeah. and I'm sorry that uh, that you were disappointed, uh, but I hope that you, you know, enjoyed the show overall, and, you know, we, we liked uh, having you on and liked having you as a listener. I did. Thank you very much. Thanks, Scott. So I'm curious what, what you guys think of this Ronald Lee Moore and what, you know, Deirdre Enright said about him. Obviously, she seemed excited about this as a, as a potential alternative theory. We brought it up a couple of weeks ago on our extra spoily episode. Uh, it it's always seems undercut by the fact that Jay knew where the car was and, and, and Jay got involved. And, and what, what would his connection be to this, this random serial killer? On the other hand, I will just throw this out there. The one way that you then undercut that undercutting is to say, well, maybe there was some real corruption here. Yurik seems so eager to drive this theory. There was those, those three hours when the police were talking to him. You know, is there any way that possibly they were just sort of pushing this version of the crime? Did you guys end this episode thinking there's any possibility besides Jay or Adnan or Jay and Adnan? Is there, do you guys hold out any, any hope that they'll find something when they go and test the DNA that, that leads to someone else? Wait, I don't understand your theory about... What, what, didn't Jay know where the car was well, before that's what the, the police, police even got to him? I don't think we know that for sure. Oh. Yeah, they, 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 you know, the, the, the report is that he took them to the car. Yeah. But I don't think we could say definitively... So, but, but then you'd have to think that this rando serial killer killed someone who's... And then the Patsy had randomly lent his car right. to Jay. That seems like way too big of a coincidence. So he's a random. Anyway, so he would be a random serial killer. Jay, the police would be looking at the ex-boyfriend. They get in Jay. They put pressure on him. We're going to put you to jail for drug stuff. Right. So you're going to have to finger the ex-boyfriend. Luckily, you have a car. Yeah, right. weird. Okay. There's also the there's also the issue of the fact that the police, if I'm not mistaken, spoke to Jen first, who directed them to Jay. Yeah. Anyway. Or yeah. I guess to be really out. There was a phone in the vestibule. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like maybe somehow Jay and or Adnan got mixed up with Ronald Lee Moore. Like I I can't imagine. Um, but I mean, the really interesting comment that Deirdre made to me was like, given that none of the facts here hold up and that we have basically no case against anyone. Logically, it is more likely that a random serial killer um, killed Heyman Lee than this perfectly nice Adnan Syed. Right, yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, she says, big picture, Sarah, right. big picture. And I think that's basically what, what she means. And, and it does make sense. You, it's so easy to get lost in the weeds about, the, you know, meaning the vestibule and the 236 call and, and all these other things. And, and it does in some ways make sense to just sort of back up for a second and say, you know, maybe we're, maybe we're getting lost in all this stuff. And there is some, some bigger picture. But, you know, like I su- suspect most people, I ended up feeling, as I have for a while now, that, you know, there was some combination of Jay and Adnan's involvement and they're both lying about something and I don't really know what happened so we have to we, you know we should have acquit him the jury should have acquit him um, but uh, you know I, I'm, I'm not hanging my my hopes 
for him on, on the DNA test, I guess is what I would say. You know, if I had to uh, find a flaw in the show, there are two things. One is, I think just the lack of a prosecutorial voice was missing. I mean, there are a lot of people who were literally defense attorneys, either on tape or people acting like the Innocence Project. Now, when they hired that police expert, that was great because he told you things that I don't think Sarah, being a good journalist and being open-minded, but even she didn't even think to ask. Like when he said this was above average police work, that seems surprising. I would have liked someone, hey, you're a former prosecutor. Go over what I did and point holes. Tell me what would be ruled out. Tell me all. Tell me the cases you had where something like this seemed so mysterious and it wasn't. I'm sure you could have. So that's also tempering my entire that I agree with her. I've I got essentially the defense version, right? I didn't get the real prosecutorial case except her summarizing it from all these years ago, and no one looked into it with as much rigor as she looked into the defense case. And the other thing, and this is really hard, the, the what's the deal with Jay episode? I understand he didn't want to be taped. I understand that she did ask the flat-out denial question. She denied it. I would have liked just her to have reported back to us that we put these two, whatever, one or two very tangible questions. How could both of these, whatever they were, how could this be true and that be true? And even if he said, I'm not going to talk about that, report on that. I didn't get enough out of that since the whole thing seems uh, to hinge on Jay. But other than that, A plus still. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the thing about everything hinging on Jay is I think one thing the show, and maybe maybe you're right, maybe I was just duped by the lack of those very concrete questions, but I thought the show demonstrated um, incredibly clearly that this is just not a reliable witness. Like the uh, the West Side hitman, just yeah. listening to him sort of dreaming up that story in real time uh, to the police officer, and and the, the character testimony from Josh, who, as I said, I, I did not warm to um but just this vision of jay as like a thoughtless mixed up kid who would sort of say anything um it just it's stunning to me that you know anon is in jail because of what this guy says yeah i agree katie and and it sounds like all three of us have been left in in this uh, place of uncertainty along with sarah koenig i think that's that's where she's been headed for a while and, and i actually do think it was a productive place for her to go. And who knows, maybe there will be a 13th episode one year from now in which Deirdre Enright returns and and they overturn the conviction or or not. But but I think that this was a, a fascinating, complicated journey to take. And I'm glad that we took it. And I'm left wondering, what's the next journey that they'll take us on? Sarah Koenig mentioned again, there's going to be a second season. And she specifically said sometime in 2015, which uh, actually, given how long they worked on this one, doesn't seem like that much time. But uh, we threw that question out to listeners and asked them, what, would, what kind of story would you like to hear? And a lot of them, you know, suggested a story that in some ways was like this one. You know, uh, a listener named Lauren suggested the case of Grateful Doe, an unidentified John Doe who was found dead in Virginia, who had two ticket stubs in his pocket from the previous weekend's Grateful Dead show at RFK Stadium, hence hence the name. Uh, she also mentioned the case of Johnny Gosh, or Johnny Gosh, an Iowa paperboy who went missing in the early 80s. We even got an email from a listener who suggested that they look into someone she knew who claimed that she had cancer and then maybe didn't have cancer. Uh, I won't provide too many other details about that one because I feel a little awkward putting that out into the, into the public sphere. But I thought one of the more interesting emails that we got was from a guy named Ben who kind of raised this larger question about what the series even is, what Serial is. Here's what, here's what Ben had to say. Despite its title, I'm not yet sure Serial is a series. 
Put another way, it feels more like a movie than a TV show. It's been a great movie, and I'm interested to see what the writer-director will do next. But outside this one true crime story, I have no sense of what the show's serial is or what to expect in subsequent seasons, which is sort of where I am. But I'm, I'm curious about you two. What, what do you hope for? Are you really interested? Are you, you know, uh, do you have low expectations? What do you think? I'll tell you what it is. It's a, it's a way to look at an event, a true crime probably, and to use that as a through line to get to know an ecosystem and to explore issues of criminal justice and teenagedom and technology from 20 years ago and memory. I mean, this was a through line. You could do this. You could give me a story on Jack the Ripper, right? The most famous unsolved serial killer. And you could just provide details about Whitechapel or what the English working class was doing at that time. And it would be fascinating. I don't think that was the point. I don't think that this was not a MacGuffin. This was a real dead person and they were really trying to solve it. But it was all the stuff along the way that justifies the 12 partedness of this. Plus that it was such a hard case to solve. It doesn't have to be a missing person. It doesn't have to be a murder, but it has to be something with a huge question mark that exposes um, that, that where the meaning goes deeper than just that crime itself. What about you, Katie? Yeah, actually, I think, Mike, you said that perfectly. My, I keep coming back to, basically, we started this episode and we started the entire series with, we don't have the facts. Let's find some facts. And then we ended the episode in the series with, we didn't have the facts then. We don't have the facts now. And in the middle, there was this incredibly fascinating, engaging, uh, useful, worthwhile project. And so to me, that just says that whatever happened on Serial doesn't necessarily have to do with, you know, a, a story and facts. Um, it has to do with what you make of facts and how personalities are sort of interpreting facts and where you go, like what direction. So, yeah, I think Serial is just like freedom. Serial is freedom. And, they can and, do whatever they want. You know what? I, and, and it seems like this thing, true crime, has been ceded to Nancy Grace or uh, the first 40, whatever that CBS show was, or whatever that show on NBC, one of the Dateline shows. And there is an idiom to it. And there's a, a way to do it that high-minded listeners, or not even high-minded, but people who are really, really want to glom on to this level of content, but it's off-putting the way it's usually presented. It's pretty tawdry. So what if we took that, what if we took the very compelling issue of true crime and used it to tell us about society? The baseball writer Bill James wrote a book about murder, and he makes exactly this case. And on NPR, we don't even cover true crime stories. Maybe the conclusion of a huge trial, because it seems beneath us, but it's not beneath us. It's the most fundamental thing there is. And what Serial is doing is pointing that out, not letting us... There were the accusation that we leveled in it, and they used the victim as a prop. Absolutely not. It was I think of extremely humanistic story and the, and some of these techniques were so good and we're not even the ones we notice are good I'll just tell you something that uh, before we talked, I talked to four people who've edited long stories on NPR and uh, they they, they gave me great insights. But a couple of them mentioned that Nancy Updike, who's a This American Life producer, I think she's Iris, pretty much Iris' partner, gave a talk where she talked about the very first things we heard in the show, where she where where Sarah surveys these high school students, like, what were you doing a day ago? And no one could mention it. Now, why was that done? And people would say, oh, well, it was done because to put us, to, to make us identify, to make us realize how tough memory is. 
Here's another reason. This whole series is about high school students, yet we don't hear from any high school students. We hear from adults who used to be high school students. So the very first thing by hearing about high school students puts that in our mind. There's so many instances of language she uses, which is an image. Um, she says, now the big rubber stamp would come out and say undocumented, or this would be put up in big letters, the Nisha sign. She's using so many storytelling techniques that if you trust these people, I think they can't, no matter what they choose, they can't go wrong with a season two. And I hope that I'm, I'm anticipating there's going to be a lot of backlash on the internet. I hope this doesn't get them down. I hope most people praise it for its brilliance. You know, it's interesting, Mike, that you sound so confident that it will be a crime story, because from what I understand, they have suggested interviews that that maybe they're inclined not to do a crime story. They haven't promised anything. They probably haven't even found the story yet. I do think, I mean, for me, I really hope that there is a mystery of some kind. There are a lot of mysteries out there. Some of them involve the criminal justice system. Many of them do not. But I I really, in, in addition to admiring those techniques and also respecting the care and and often restraint that went into telling uh, the story, which really could have gone very badly. And, you know, there might have been a decision here and there that I, that I might not have made. But in general, I thought they were very careful. But I really also enjoyed... The, the way it sucked me in and got me thinking hard myself about what this what this all meant. Now, part of that, it, you know, part of the result of that is a lot of the things that came up on subsequent episodes, like Ronald Lee Moore, I'd, I'd read about already. But I but I enjoyed that. I liked being that pulled into a story that, you know, that was important. I think the next story they tell doesn't have to have quite so so high uh, stakes as this one did. But I would love for it to have a central question that they really are trying to solve and that we can all get invested in. It doesn't have to be the justice system, but it should be about an injustice in some way, a question of justice. Well, that that sounds to me, Mike, like as good a note as any to end on. This has been a fascinating uh, journey. And uh, I want to especially thank our listeners who continue to send us suggestions for, for next season, even, even as we sit here. And uh, and have just been been great throughout this 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 whole process. I want to thank both of you guys, uh, of course, for joining me. Thanks for rejoining us, Mike. I nursed out, David. I, I, I do too. <laughs> I do too. And thanks as always, Katie. Sure, thank you. This has been so great. I agree. And I and I also want to mention to our listeners that if you if you've enjoyed this, we do also spoil movies and TV shows on a regular basis, so be sure to subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special feed if you want to hear more. Our producer is Joel Meyer, the executive producer of All Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Mike Pesca and Katie Waldman, I'm David Haglin. Thanks for listening. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.